0: Good morning, John chapter 7, we're going to be in the rest of it today. You'll need your Bibles open this morning as we have a longer text before us, John 7 verses 32 through 52, page 893 in the Pew Bible. I noticed in Sunday school, I love snow so much and I love preaching in the snow, I noticed that I kept looking out the window, so if you see me looking out the window, it's because it's so pretty, I can't can't help it. Uh, God is good. John 7, 32-52. Last week we considered our response to Christ. Remember, much of this passage is about the crowd's negative response to Christ. Conflict is escalating, opposition is growing, we're heading towards the cross. Why do people respond to the kind and compassionate Christ of life with hatred? Why does the greatest teacher who ever lived receive received a response of apathy and animosity? Why do we so struggle to respond rightly to the Christ who is life? Jesus says, I am life. I am eternal, perfect satisfaction for your souls. And we say, eh, you know, I'll try Netflix. Right? What a ridiculous response. But we all do that. How have you responded to Christ? And how can you tell? How can we judge our response to Christ? It's an important question uh, because he is the one on whom everything hinges. Your response to Christ determines your eternity, determines your everything. And so last week we looked at three tests to help us tell. Consider your obedience to God's law, consider your knowledge of God's son, consider your trust in God's sovereignty. Those three things can go a long way in helping you to judge how you have actually responded to Christ. It's not all that complicated. It shouldn't be controversial. But if there is no obedience, If there's no desire for knowledge, if there's no trust, then there has been no salvation, right? There is no life. A Christian is not one who says they believe in Jesus. A Christian is one who has been saved by the grace of God, united to Christ, and indwelt, as we're going to see this morning, by the Holy Spirit himself. And that will demonstrate itself in a response of obedience, knowledge, and trust. And however small, however struggling, however slow at times... But let me be clear, you do not know Jesus if you are not seeking to obey, know, and trust Jesus. It's it's, it's simple. As we've been seeing on Thursdays, Christians, those who have the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They are concerned with and consumed by the things of God, primarily by and with Christ himself. And how have you responded to Christ? Our passage this morning consists of, of three movements We begin and end with two more sections of responses to Christ. 32 through 36, response. 40 through 52, response. Sandwiched around the main center section. Around Christ himself. Verses 37 through 39. And I want us to focus there this morning. We've considered our response to Christ. We will have further opportunity to do that today. But I want our primary focus to be on Christ himself. This morning. Who really is this Christ that we are responding to? what's so great about him that deserves so great a response? A whole souled, whole life, joyful coming to him. What is it that he really offers us that is so worth our giving up everything to find our everything in him? That's what he tells us this morning, in one of the greatest invitations in the whole. Of scripture, the kindest and most important offer you will ever receive. I have the privilege of delivering that invitation today. This is the point of John Chapter seven. And the response to this is the point of John chapter seven. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Even if you have no idea what Jesus is talking about there, oh it's it's an attractive, alluring picture isn't it? It sounds good. There's nothing better than true physical thirst quenched by cold, refreshing water. There's nothing better than true spiritual thirst quenched by Christ. So You are thirsty. Your dissatisfaction and your discontent prove it. No other creature in the world is dissatisfied and discontent. Fish just float there. Dogs just lay there. There's some birds that are driving us crazy right now. And they just sit on our window. And they're just happy and content to sit there forever. They're all satisfied. What's wrong with us? Why is one of the most famous songs of the last 50 years titled, I Can't Get No Satisfaction? And in 1975, Mick Jagger, lead singer of the Rolling Stones, he was 32 at the time, said, I'd rather be dead than sing Satisfaction at 45. Guess what? (laughs) He is seventy-eight, still singing it. Still creepy. (laughs) He still can't get no satisfaction. Why not? And and why do we also so struggle to find it? Again, it's it's just simply because we insist on looking for it only where it cannot be found. Christ tells us here where it can only be found. And so, if you think about this, this is pretty neat. You have right here before you the answer to all your problems. All of them. I'm not exaggerating. All your anger. All your disappointment. All your discouragement. All your hurt. All your fear. All your whatever Christ says, come to me and drink. That's it. It's really that simple. We just don't believe him. We just don't believe it's that simple. So let's consider this text together. Let's focus on considering Christ. Let's ask the spirit that is offered in this text. To help us believe. Three very simple points this morning to structure our time. Number one, we're going to start off and we're going to see that the time is short. Number two, the Christ, though, is life. And then we'll, we'll see in number three that the life, that life is the Spirit. The time is short, the Christ is life, life is the Spirit. John chapter 7, picking up in verse 32. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, about Jesus, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were, yet to, who were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one. Laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. If you would bow with me and let's go to the Lord first with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being here together now, uh, sitting under that word. Father, it is your word that matters, not mine. Father, it is your word that is living and active. And so we ask now that you would help us uh, to focus Father, help us to uh, be aware of our thirst. Help us to be aware of how we have sought to satisfy that thirst throughout this last week. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would give us the eyes to see Christ for who he is and for what he offers. We pray that we would see the wonderful opportunity that we have of true soul satisfaction, thirst being quenched in Christ. We pray that you would use this text to further draw us to him and to help us to more and more uh, seek and find our life in him. Father, please help both the preaching and the hearing of your word now. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, we can be short here for time is short. Or better yet, more pointed, your time is short. I think that's the big idea of verses 32 through 36. Let's run through those quickly. Remember, we start again with a response to Jesus. But I want us to focus on Jesus' response to the response to Jesus. First, in verse 32, the Pharisees respond to the crowd's response to Jesus. They heard the crowd muttering. This is the same word we saw back in verse 12, and we saw three times in chapter 6. And we noted that it's always a negative word. It means to murmur or grumble or complain. The crowd is not responding quite as badly as the Pharisees, but their response isn't good. In verse 30, we just saw the crowd seeking to arrest Jesus, some sort of citizen's arrest, I guess. Now, in verse 32, we see the religious officials sending their own officers to go and arrest Jesus. This is, this is indicative of the general response that we've been seeing. We've summarized it, saying the crowd misunderstands the Christ, the crowd does not believe the Christ, the crowd hates the Christ, and that's evidenced here in their attempt to arrest him, knowing that the religious officials want to kill him. And now the officials themselves get in on the action and send in their goons to get Jesus. But look at Jesus's response to all this in verse 33: "I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to Him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come." Now, we don't like that word "cannot." Jesus uses that word cannot. Paul uses that word cannot. Jesus is going to say the same thing coming up in chapter 8, verse 21. He says, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. What does he mean? That he's going away. That he's going to him who sent him. We know he's talking about returning to the Father. Well, why then would they not be able to come there? Well, he's just told them, look up in verse 28. He just told them in verse 28, He who sent me, the Father, is true, and him, the Father, you do not know. We considered how insulting that would have been. Jesus says to the Jews, You do not even know the God you so claim to know and love. He just told them in verse 19, None of you keeps the law, the law of God. The law of God they so claim to know and love. I am going to the Father, And obviously you will not and cannot come there because you do not know the Father, nor do you obey the Father. I think think there's an implicit threat there. Time is short. I will not be with you much longer. Remember, this, this whole section is focused on responses, generally rejecting responses to Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, reject me, reject the Father. Refuse to come to me. You cannot come to the Father. He'll say in 14.6, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so if they persist and insist in rejecting Christ, they will render themselves unable to come to the Father. Where I am going, you cannot come. The world of Jesus is beyond their ability to comprehend, beyond their ability to even enter. They simply do not understand him. Romans 3, no one understands. Romans 8, those who are on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. They cannot please God. Where I am going, you cannot come. And so their time is short. And your time is short. Yes, we saw last week that God is sovereign over time, that he has ordained and knows perfectly all of our time down to the very detail, but we don't. We are not sovereign over time. And so there will come a time when we cannot come when it is too late at minimum that time is our death which could come at any time Hebrews 9.27 it is appointed for man once to die and after that comes judgment there is no time after death there is no opportunity there is only judgment and so Christ is graciously warning the crowd here that his time with them is short six months Jesus has six months left and then he's gone Maybe your time with him is even shorter. Back in college, I liked a band called Fountains of Wayne. I'm not recommending them. I was unregenerate at the time. Uh, But they were a New York band, and they had some really catchy songs. Uh, The writer of most of those songs, Adam Schlesinger, actually died on my birthday two years ago in Poughkeepsie from, from COVID. But he wrote one of my favorite songs back in the day, and it was titled All Kinds of Time." Okay, It's a clean song, it's catchy, go listen to it. All kinds of time. It's actually a football song. He had been watching football, he had picked up on announcers talking about a well-protected quarterback in the pocket having all kinds of time to survey the field and to make a play. Pretty appropriate for Super Bowl Sunday, I guess. This wasn't on purpose. But it doesn't sound like a football song. It's very catchy, it's pretty, it's kind of haunting, and the chorus has just always stuck with me it repeats over and over and over again he's got all kinds of time all kinds of time he's got all kinds of time all kinds of time and i think that most of us probably live as if we believe that we've got all kinds of time this then is a healthy and helpful reminder we might not jesus says i will be with you a little longer one way or another, time is short. In the grand scheme of things, time is short. How silly and foolish that we can be so concerned with now and entirely unconcerned with eternity. And we would mock someone who chose $10 today instead of $10 million tomorrow. Like, You're an idiot. What are, you, what are you doing? It's $10 million. And yet we regularly do something far more foolish $10 versus $10 million is nothing compared to this life versus eternity. And yet, for so many of us, our focus is almost always, almost entirely here. Now. And Jesus says that now may be short. That now is short one way or the other. Are you using that now? Are you leveraging that now for what matters for, for them? Yeah, the Pharisees obviously are not. They demonstrate that again in verses 35 and 36. They do not at all understand what Christ is saying. You know, where's he going? I mean, is he going to the dispersion? Right? That's where, you know, it's the Jews scattered who are still scattered among the nations. He's going out to find them. Is he going to preach to the Gentiles? What's he, what's he talking about? They just, they don't get it. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Listen, the Pharisees do not understand the Christ. Do you? How have you responded to this Christ? For the time is short. But, point number two, the Christ is life. That's the point of this text. Again, let's read it again. 37 and 38. Consider this also in light of what we just heard. Consider his response to their response. They don't understand him. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. Oh, but look at what he does. In light of all of that, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's, it's hard for us to appreciate the significance of what's going on here. Context can help us. Now let's, let's take a moment to consider again where we are. Remember back in verse 2 we read, Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. And that utterly transforms what's happening here. To understand what Jesus is doing here, we've got to understand that feast. We did it a few weeks ago, but let me brief review. Remember, there were three great festivals of the Jews. This was the third and the last Deuteronomy 16, 16 says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and at the Feast of Booths. This feast. And again, remember, they're feasts. Feasts are fun. Feasts are celebrations. They were opportunities to worship the Lord and be glad, to enjoy worshiping the Lord. Do we enjoy worshiping the Lord? We talked about Sabbath. This is part of our Sabbath problem. We don't yet really appreciate the thing that the Sabbath is about. We look at these feasts, we're like, oh, like a week of church. Man, you know, it sounds terrible. Well, maybe it's because we don't enjoy the Lord yet. These were celebrations. These were parties. These were resting and rejoicing in who God is and what he has done. Deuteronomy sixteen fourteen. God commands them, you shall rejoice in your feast for seven days. Verse 15, so that you will be altogether joyful. That's what the feasts were for. We assume, again, that Passover was the biggest and most important, but that was not the case at this time. I mentioned Josephus a few years ago. Jewish historian lived right after Jesus. And he writes that this Feast of Booths was the greatest and holiest feast of the Jews. There's a sort of, it's like a harvest festival. It's the end of the, the harvest. They're celebrating that successful end of all their labors. And it's a commemoration and celebration of God's preservation of his people during their Exodus wanderings. That's what the booths, the, the tents, are about. Remember? Leviticus 23 42 commands them for that week that you will live in temporary shelters for seven days as a reminder of their rescue from Egypt. And so for a whole week, Throughout the whole city, everyone comes in, everyone sets up tents, everyone stays and sleeps in those, goes around, rests, rejoices, worships, and celebrates God's gracious provision in this mass of people. Remember, back in the, in the Exodus, if, if, if Israel was constantly on the move, or this is about the Exodus, if they're constantly on the move, if they're living in, desert, in, in tents in the desert, and if they have no permanent home, that meant that they were entirely dependent on God to provide for them. What was the one thing that they would need most provided? Water, obviously. They must have water to live in the desert. And so one of the key episodes uh, of the Exodus is in chapter 17 of Exodus. The people are grumbling. They were great at that. Verse 3 says the people thirsted for water. There's the thirst. And then in response to their unbelief, they're grumbling. They want to arrest them. They want to kill them. God responds to their grumbling by graciously providing for them water, flowing water out of the rock. He provides for them life. That's what this festival is about. And so, over the course of the years, a particular ceremony had developed that served as one of the highlights of the Feast of Booths, commemorating that episode. You can go read about all about it in the, in the Jewish Mishnah. But every day of the Feast be a huge gathering and a huge parade. They would parade out of the temple complex. They would go directly south, not too far, to the pool of Siloam. Um, And we'll see that pool in chapter 9, where Jesus heals a blind man. But they would all parade to the pool with the priests, and then one of the priests would fill up this big gold pitcher of water. And then they would parade all back into the city, back into the temple with that water. Crowds were following. Horns were blowing. It was a big deal. They would get back to the altar. The priests would then march around the altar while the Hallel Psalms were sung. 113 through 118. The the praise psalms. The participants, everyone who was there, would be holding in their left hand. They had branches. They had things that were kind of commemorating the harvest. And in the other hand, they held, apparently, citrus fruit. This is all in in the the Mishnah. Again, commemorating the Another successful harvest, remembering them, reminding them of God's provision of food during the Exodus. So they would go around, they would march, they would sing. And when Psalm 118 was reached, apparently everyone was supposed to shake their branches, raise the fruit into the air and cry out, give thanks to the Lord. And do that three times. And then the water would be poured out on the altar before the Lord. Remembering God's provision of water Uh, looking forward to God's provision of eschatological water to come. And again, we just can't quite grasp how central and significant this was for them. The mission that goes on, it says in reference to this ceremony, it says, he who has not seen the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing has never seen rejoicing in his life. This was a time of joy and, and, and celebration the mission also records an occasion when apparently the priest conducting the ceremony spilled the water all over his shoes. Apparently, the people then proceeded to stone him with all the citrus fruits uh, that they were holding. It's a fruit, so he was probably okay, but they threw, the, they threw the oranges or whatever it was at him. So thank you for not throwing cups of coffee uh, at me. But man, this is at this is the very heart and soul of the Jewish religion. Everyone would have known what this was all about. Everyone would have known what this represented. Everyone would have known what this looked forward to. Everyone knew how important this was and how symbolically significant this was. And that's why what Jesus does in verse 37 is so big. We're so prone to miss how absurd and audacious Jesus' claims were. But verse 37 tells us that on the great day, the last day of the feast, maybe as this very ceremony is wrapping up. Maybe the crowds are gathered, going nuts, water's being poured out. Maybe it's then that Jesus stands up and cries out in the middle of that, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you you see what he's doing there? He has just said, you know, all that, that thing that was just a really big deal seven times this week, uh, your most beloved of feasts, all that symbolism that you so love and, and lean on, all of that, all this, it's all about me. It would be like if people in our country these days like, actually liked our country, right? And, and, and we had some sort of national 4th of July celebration, celebrating the country, celebrating freedom, and I stood up in the midst of that celebration in front of everyone on TV and cried out, hey, all that, life, liberty, happiness, freedom, all that's found in me. Like this whole thing that you're doing, it's all about me. You want freedom? Come to me. Or if I stood up at our Thanksgiving gathering there that we do every Thanksgiving and said, all right, now, it's all time for you to give thanks. To me, right? You're, you're welcome. This, this holiday is all about me. It's, it's stupid, right? It's, it's, it's laughingly absurd. It's exactly what Jesus is doing here. That's exactly what he's doing. Everything that this represents... Is merely a shadow, a sign. I'm the substance. I'm the point. What you are looking for in all of this is only found in me. Life is only found in me. So it's crazy, unless it's true. If it's false, he's crazy. Ignore him. If it's true, you're crazy for ignoring him. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, we saw Jesus claim that he is the temple We tried to highlight how central the temple was to just the whole of Jewish life. Jesus says, that's me. In 129, we saw that Jesus is the sacrifice. And how central was the sacrifice to the the whole religious system. Jesus says, that's me. And here we see him claim that he's the feast. The temple, sacrifices, the feast. All these things that are the absolute heart and soul of the Jewish religion. Jesus again and again claims that that they're all about him. That he's the point of it all. It all points to him. And yes, we struggle to see the significance, the bigness, and the boldness of these claims because we don't well understand Jewish life 2,000 years ago. But, but Jesus' claims are no less significant, no less big or bold in reference to your life right now. Not only does he claim that the whole of the Jewish religious life back then was ultimately about him, but he claims that the whole of life he claims that the whole of reality of your life, and of your reality is ultimately about Him. I love Colossians 1. You should spend a lot of time in Colossians 1. Jesus is the Im- image of the invisible God. Right? He is God. This man standing at this feast is God. Verse 16. All things were created by Him, through Him, and for Him. Let I me mean, just, just sit in that for a second. What a claim that is. If all things were created by him, that means that you were created by him. If all things were created for him, that means that you were created for him. Verse 17, try to wrap your brain around this. In him, all things hold together. And I don't have the ability to really comprehend that. But that's this Christ. Those are the claims of and about this Christ. That everything is for him. That you are for him, and that everything holds together in him. Right? Who is this man? He's claiming that he is life itself. We've traced on a number of occasions the theme of Christ as life in the Gospel of John. That's what this book is about. One four. In him was life. Three sixteen. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Six thirty five. I am the bread of life. Ten ten. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 17.3, eternal life is knowing him. 20.31, this book is written so that you may believe that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Wait, that's what this whole book's about. Life, only found in Christ. And that's again what he is very boldly and bluntly claiming here. And so maybe if you have not found life, Or if you are struggling to experience true life and the peace and the contentment and the joy that comes with it. Maybe it's because you continue to insist on seeking life apart from Christ. That can ultimately be the only explanation. For he offers it to us here. He gives to us the greatest of invitations. The kindest and clearest of invitations. What you are looking for. All that you're looking for. I'm telling you where it's found. It's found in me. Anyone, come to me and drink. What's the one condition? What does he say? Thirst. Anyone is thirsty. And he's obviously spiritually speaking there. He's talking about soul thirst. And in a sense, we, we all have this. Right? Our dis, dissatisfaction, our distraction, our depression, our obsession, all are ultimately symbols of this thirst. They all result from the loss of the one thing that we need. The one that we need. Aspergian says, thirst is the absence of a necessary, right? I'm thirsty because I don't have something that I need. He says thirst is a painful need. Thirst is an emptiness. Thirst is a conscious need. Conscious to a painful degree. Thirst is a warning that something very important is lacking. We all have that in the sense that we know something is missing. And so we seek to satisfy it in, in various ways. But there's another sense in which, as J.C. Ryle says, such thirst as this that Jesus is talking about here unhappily is known by few. And Ryle goes on to define the thirst that Jesus is talking about here as anxiety of soul, conviction of sin, desire of pardon, longing after peace of conscience. When a man feels his sins and wants forgiveness, is deeply sensible of his soul's need and earnestly desires help and relief. You see, everyone has a general sense of need. Right? We all know that something's wrong. We all know that something's missing. Few have a specific understanding of what that need really is and where that need really can be satisfied. Right? Ryle goes on to say, happy are those who know something by experience of spiritual thirst. The beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, needy sinners. Have you even begun? Do you have? Have you had this discovery that you really are a guilty, empty, needy sinner? Are you thirsty? Have you discovered, truly discovered, that Christ is the only solution? Are you drinking? Stop looking for life. Stop looking for soul satisfaction anywhere else. The one who is the creator and sustainer of life, the one who is life, invites you here very graciously to come to him and drink and have all your needs met. Christ is life. But, point number three, life is the spirit. Consider this. Let's look a little bit closer Jesus has just said very clearly in the last chapter, I am the bread of life. He's about to say very clearly in the next chapter, I am the light of the world. It would be really convenient here for him to say, I am the living water. But that's not exactly what he says, is it? Why not? Look at 38 again. Not I am the living water. But whoever believes in me, as the scripture is said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? Thank you, John. Keep reading. Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit. See, Jesus does not say, I am the living water, because in John's gospel, and frequently in many spots in the Old Testament, water is the symbol for the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is the living water. The Holy Spirit is the water of life, given by the bread of life. It is the Spirit that brings the satisfaction to our souls. How is that? Is that a contradiction to the claim that it is Christ alone who brings satisfaction to our souls? Of course not. Because this Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. This is the Spirit that Christ is going to reveal to us in great detail in chapters 14, 15, and 16. The, the spirit Jesus describes as another helper, another advocate. He says literally another like him. And again, I can't wait to get there because we're just so spirit confused these days. It seems that we are either spirit ignorant, that right? we just ignore him. That's often more the case in our circles. Or spirit insane, that right? we just get him completely wrong. It's often more the case in, in charismatic circles. Do right? you know which way you lean? I know which way I lean so I'm trying to correct that. What does Jesus tell us the Spirit will do? Jesus is how we find out who the Spirit is and what he does. With this book, he's everywhere. Chapter 3, Jesus says that it's the Spirit who converts. You must be born of the Spirit. Chapter 6, he just told us that it's the Spirit who gives life. Same thing. We'll see in 14 through 16, Jesus says the Spirit will teach us all things and bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said. Jesus says the Spirit will bear witness... About him. Jesus says the Spirit will convict concerning sin. Jesus said he will guide us into all truth. Jesus says the Spirit will glorify Christ. That's the Spirit in like two sentences. You could say that the Spirit communicates, convicts, converts, and communes. Communicates, convicts, converts, communes. He reveals Christ. He convicts his people of sin. He judges not his people for sin. He causes us to be born again and he indwells us mediating to us the very presence of God. So it sounds like the Spirit is really important and really good. And so this goes perfectly with what we're seeing in Romans chapter 8, the most Spirit-heavy chapter in Scripture. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Do you have the Spirit of Christ? That is the mark of a Christian. Is your mind set on the things of the Spirit? That is evidence of the mark. Do you have objectively and are you experiencing subjectively the life and peace that the Spirit brings? All of that comes by and through the Spirit. Life is the Spirit. There is, no spirit. there is no life without the Spirit. And that's why water is such an effective metaphor for the Spirit. You know, not, not just water, but flowing water. What does flowing water do? It gives life and refreshment to a dry and dead land. What does the Holy Spirit do? It gives life and refreshment to a dry and dead soul. What does flowing water do? It washes and cleanses a filthy and dirty body. What does the Holy Spirit do? He washes and cleanses a filthy and dirty soul. That's the very heart and soul of what God has promised to do for us. This is the new covenant. Isaiah 44.3. Don't forget, parallelism characterizes Hebrew poetry. Right? The second part often expounds upon or explains the first part. Listen to the first part. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. What does that mean? Let me explain. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. There's the water spirit connection. Ezekiel 36, the new covenant. What's it all about? What will God do for us? What will he give to us? Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Wait, how does water clean spiritual? how How? Verse 26. I will give you a new heart. Wait, how, how? Verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, the promise of the new covenant is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the gospel is the gift of the Spirit. Uh, Peter took a brief John Owen break on Thursday and quoted Jonathan Edwards for us. And it's a brilliant quote. Edwards says this. I'd never heard this one. I love it. I'm using spirit instead of ghost just to contextualize for you. Christ purchased for us true spiritual excellency, grace, and holiness, the sum of which, you know, all of it, spiritual excellence, grace, holiness, that's awesome. The sum of which is nothing but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the heart. The Holy Spirit is the sum of all good things. The Holy Spirit is the purchased possession and inheritance Of the saints. The greatest subject of all gospel promises is the Holy Spirit. Oh, we don't think like that about the Holy Spirit. Peter rightly argued that the greatest gift we get in the gospel is the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness is great. No hell is great. Peace is great. But the gospel is God giving us Himself. Remember, he says to Abraham, I am your very great reward. The thing you get, Abraham, is me. God is the gift. Of the gospel. God is our great gain. Listen, if you're just kind of scared about the hell thing and trying to get out of that, you should be cautious about that. Right? The believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit are to see the, the goodness and the grace and the glory of God and say, Oh, that's that's what I want. That's what this is about. And so the gospel is God giving us Himself. God is our great gain, and we get God, and we are in God, and God is in us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Thirsty? come to Christ believe and receive the holy spirit the one who takes all that Christ has accomplished and makes it ours the one who takes god himself and makes him ours this is what jesus is offering you here god himself with you in you and for you god himself who is life giving that life to you by uniting you to him yeah, it's amazing right the glory of god is the theme of the whole of scripture And the presence of the holy God with and in his sinful people is the primary way that glory is displayed. And communion with this God, the experience of the presence of that glory, the gladness and the peace and the joy that we can find in knowing him and in being known by him, in communing with him, that's life. We know that relationship was life. Again, even they do secular studies, psychology, all these studies, and they'll indicate, right? The, the measures of life and joy and, and experience is, is basically dependent upon your relationships. Like that, that, that's it, right? Your friends and family and, and things of that. Right. How much more, then, is relationship with the God of life life itself? That's what you're looking for. You may not know it, but that's what you're looking for. And it only happens by the Spirit. Have you come? Did you drink? Are you. Drinking. Notice one other thing, if it seems that you may still be missing something. I think this is helpful for the spirit ignorant of us, me. Because thirst, verse 38 isn't exactly what we'd expect. Look again at 38 another time. It's not exactly how we would expect Jesus to finish. We would expect something like, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and he will be satisfied. Or, or his, his thirst will be quenched. That is, of course, absolutely true. Jesus says that elsewhere. But that's not exactly what he says here. What did we just learn about the Spirit? What does he do? Again, not weird supernatural experiences. You can be pretty confident that if you're in a place that is always talking about the Spirit and always also talking about healings and feelings, the ecstatic and dramatic, then that is not the Spirit. The Spirit is always about the Christ, communicating and conforming. He works to make us like Christ. He is the Holy Spirit, the one who makes us holy, that is conformed to the image of God's holy Son. So the Spirit takes the adopted children of God and makes them like the only begotten Son of God. And what are we seeing that Son to be like in these chapters? Three times, Jesus has just talked about him who sent me. He's just said, I'm going back to him who sent me, him who sent me. Sent him why? Sent him to do what? we know Send him to save. In other words, send him for others. Verse 38 again. Not his heart will be filled up with water. It will, but that's not what Jesus says. But out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, we are well watered by Christ so that we can well water others. This is not just about our spiritual satisfaction in Christ. It is about that. But it is also about us being the means through which others find spiritual satisfaction in Christ. The one blessed by God's grace becomes then a channel, a means of that blessing to others. Maybe this is one of the things that we are missing. Maybe we're more like a reservoir than a flowing river. I encouraged the members at our members meeting last week and I'll encourage you to do the same. How are you seeking the spiritual good of others? is there any sense in which rivers of living water are flowing out of your heart to bless others? For this is exactly what the Christ that we say that we love and are becoming like has done for us. Jesus told them, just told them, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. How's he going to do that? How's he going to him who sent me? What's he talking about there right before he launches into this gracious invitation? The cross. He's talking about his death. Also, then, of course, his, his resurrection and his ascension. But you can't have either of those without first the death. His death for others. For us. This is who he is. This is what he has come to do. For even the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, God himself, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. For us. That's the gospel. It's all about the glory of God revealed in what Christ does for us. He lives for us. He dies for us. You are a sinner. You were dead in those trespasses and sins. Your only hope was or is the Christ who is life coming to live and die for you. And that's what it means to come to him. That's what it means to believe. To receive and trust in his life and death in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. Out of his heart flowed streams of living water okay what about yours are we loving one another are we going out of our way to seek the spiritual good of those around us this is where we must grow this is where we must cry out to the lord for help right we want ministry opportunities we want to know how we can serve listen here's how here is the opportunity we don't need any more programs I can hardly get any of you to come to Sunday school and Bible study as it is. Was that too passive-aggressive? I'm not trying to be. But it's just a fact. So we don't need need more programs. What we do need are spiritually intentional relationships. Where we are committing ourselves to one or two or three others. We are reading the word together. Praying together. Truly, actually getting to know one another. And one another's hearts and weaknesses and failures and struggles and needs. And then actually caring. For one another. That's what we need. Who can you seek? Who can you serve? And I guarantee you. That as you do. You will find much satisfaction for your own soul. Because this is how God has wired us to work. And my problem is that. I think that I'm the one exception to this rule. Right? I know other people need people. I don't. I know other people need friends. Eh, you know, No thanks. Um, like it, my problem is I don't really believe that. Right? And you might be like me. Pray for me, pray for us, pray for the Spirit to help us. The Spirit, by the way, I I skipped this and I was going over my sermon this morning. I was like, oh man, whoops. Uh, Verse 38, real quick, this is just a side note because I couldn't skip it. It says, verse 38, the Spirit who had not yet been given. That could be confusing. The Greek literally says the Spirit was not. Well, we know that the Spirit was. We, We know that he is God, so he always was, he is. And we know that saints in the Old Testament, Romans 4, were saved just like we were, by the Spirit, right? So it, it seems uh, that all that 38 means is that the Spirit had not yet been given in the fullness that would come um, at, at Pentecost and after Christ's uh, resurrection and ascension and glory, right? It, it will be then, it's still yet to come, the Spirit will be finally poured out in, in fullness. Right? So Piper describes it as like a little hole in a dam. There's the Spirit and then the dam coming down and then boom, there's, there's the water. So again, there's always been the Spirit. People have always only been saved by the Spirit. But, that Spirit comes in great fullness after Christ, and Christ and the Father send Him. Um, but I just didn't want to ignore that. Alright, last thing real quick. I had another point, but I cut it. You're welcome. I want to draw your attention to just the, the one last. I just can't skip verse 46. I want to leave you with verse 46 instead of trying to squeeze another whole sermon out. In verses 40 through 43, back to responses to Christ, the people again demonstrate their confusion. You know, Prophet, Christ, no, we probably still arrest him. Uh, and it says there was division among the people. Schism is literally the Greek word. There was schism among the people. Christ is the great divider. He's the division. He's the continental divide. Uh, we've, we've been seeing that in this chapter. But it was in verse 32 that the Pharisees sent the officers to arrest Jesus. We don't hear the result of that until verse 45. The officers now come back. The Pharisees ask, why didn't you arrest him? Verse 46, this is a great response. No one ever spoke like this man. Uh, The Pharisees mock the guards. They make fun of them. Are you ignorant like the masses? There's just so much arrogance and so much mocking and and dismissing. We see Nicodemus somewhat defend Jesus. Maybe it's not clear, but it seems that maybe Nicodemus is is trending in the right uh, direction. Again, we'll we'll see him at at the end. I I think he's being drawn um, to the Lord. Um, The point is, don't... Don't respond like the Pharisees. All right, don't respond in just the, the, the arrogance and the anger and the hatred. I think few of us are responding like that. Uh, it's, it's the apathy. It's the unconcern that I'm concerned about. But the guards again. Look at the guards and let's close with them. They saw something. They recognized something about Christ. His teaching. I called these guys goons earlier. That wasn't very accurate. Um, These would have come out of the Levites. These guys would have been Levites. These guys would have been um, theologically trained, right? They they would have known things about the law. It's not like just some goons sitting there, like, oh, listen to Jesus. No, these guys, they would have known uh, something. And they felt the authority. They felt the weight of his words. The authority that sent them to arrest Jesus was nothing compared to the authority of Jesus. So they said, Ignoring that because of this. They went to arrest Jesus, but. Jesus arrested them? Have you been arrested by Jesus? Have you been captivated, captured, engaged with him? You are thirsty, all of us, you are thirsty. Are you seeking to satisfy that thirst in Christ? Do you see and respond to Jesus as your great soul quencher? When tired, frustrated, confused, needing rest and renewal, is your move to him or is your move to to you, to, to entertainment or to some other comfort or, or self-medication. Uh, here, here's, what, here's what I'm really struggling with, the Sabbath stuff and with my own heart. Do you actually find Christ restful and restoring? Do you actually find the means of grace restful and restoring? Worship restful and restoring? Sabbath restful and restoring? Do you enjoy Christ? Look at the picture that we get of him just in these few short verses. See his kindness and compassion. In response to the hatred and the arrest and the desire to kill, he offers. He says, come and I will quench your thirst and I will give you life. They, they, they see that no one speaks like this. There's nothing else like him. There's nothing else like his word. Do you see him for what he is and desire him and enjoy him? My prayer is that increasingly we would. My prayer is that we would see the goodness and graciousness of this invitation if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink. And my prayer is that we would, that we would find satisfaction for our souls and be a means through which others would find satisfaction for their souls in Christ. My prayer is that we would stop trying to satisfy our souls with other things and learn more and more what it means to satisfy them in Christ and Christ alone. He's the answer. He is life. And he is inviting every single one of us who are thirsty to come to him If you would, bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like Christ. To whom shall we go? he has the words of eternal life. Father, forgive us for how this last week, this very day, we have sought uh, to find our gladness and our satisfaction and our rest in other things. Father, we pray that you would increasingly lead us to learn what it really looks like to find those things in Christ. We thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you for the reminder of Isaiah 50, from Isaiah 55 of your great compassion that you are so not like us that you are far more compassionate and and far more patient. Father, you set your love upon us and you saved us knowing how much we would struggle still to find rest for our souls in Christ. Um, Father, we cannot do that apart from the Spirit. And so it is now, as Christ has um, revealed a little bit more to us about the Spirit uh, this morning, we, we ask that the Spirit would do that work. We ask for those rivers of living water. We ask that you would fill us up and and pour us out for your glory, um, for our own good, and, and for the good of others. Um, Father, show us Christ. Um, uh, may we be satisfied in him. And we ask and we pray thus all in his name. Amen.